Welcome to the X Overland Podcast. At X Overland, we're committed to living a life of adventure and to sharing what we learn in the hopes of inspiring and empowering others to boldly explore the world. Join the conversation as we sit down to share stories of overland travel and vehicle-based adventure with a broad range of compelling guests from around the globe. Welcome back, everybody, to the X Overland Podcast. It is fire season in Montana, officially, and that is why today Leah and I are here with our guest, Jess Braun. Jess runs Firebreak Management here in Bozeman. She is a former firefighter, and apparently I think you still do a little bit of firefighting occasionally or support uh, her team that works with her. They're all Wildlands firefighters. She knows what she's talking about, and we have her on today to address this issue. Welcome, Jess. Thanks for having me. I'm really stoked to be here. We're stoked to have you. And, uh, you know, Jess is one of those people who looks so much younger than she really is. So she's actually got a lot of experience. She is in her 30s and has fought a lot of fires, but she's just gifted with this youthful way about her, probably from the physical (laughs) active life you lead. Well, thank you. I don't, I don't know about that. It's kind of done a lot of wear and tear, too. I'm sure it has its pros and cons. <laughs> so, um, Just let me know what your skin regimen is so I can jump in on that sometime. <laughs> quite honestly, this sounds weird, especially if you can't see this. But just this week, we were hauling a lot more brush than dropping trees. And if I had worn shorts and a tank top today... I am actually like destroyed bruise wise. Like I'm covered in bruises. <laughs> Scoured with like all the brush scrapes and everything. Like, oh my gosh, I see that. I see that on your arm. I noticed that earlier. Now I'm like seeing. That was a week ago. Oh, the bruises. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is why Jess is on the podcast, Leah, though, right? Like she's the real deal. She's the real deal. <laughs> um, exactly. And, you know, to speak to that, just, just so people know what we're going to be getting into today. And then I, I'd like to know a little bit, you know, let tell our audience a little bit more about your background. Um, but what, what we're really going to be diving into today for um, vehicle-based adventures, uh, overlanders, anybody heading into the backcountry to recreate, to camp, fish, hunt, uh, you name it really, how to behave manage risk, uh, basically follow best practices in the backcountry concerning wildfire prevention. And then the second part would be wildfire safety. So that wildfire prevention piece is, you know, something like you're going to cook or build a campfire. Um, How can you do that in a way to prevent starting a wildfire? And then the safety piece would be something along the lines of you're you're in the backcountry, say you've driven 20, 30 miles out there, you're camped and a lightning strike starts a fire and you're like, whoa, what do we do now? Um, so these are the kind of things we're going to be talking about. And um, it's like I said, it's fire season right now. So we're really kind of pouring into this time of year. And I think it's timely to, to address this. Um, and Jess, you know, since we're, we're all we're getting in the fires in this episode, like let's hear a little more about your background, you know, fighting wildfires and maybe even like a a story of like what to give people a sense of what it's like if you do accidentally have your campfire run astray and then people like you have to come in to try to put it out or contain it. Yeah, we've definitely, I've definitely been on a handful of human starts that have been from wildfires. Um, Human starts are really the most uh, 
the biggest fires we go on. You know, we tend to hear about you know those huge fires. I think California is one of the examples where we've heard a lot about human starts recently. But those are just the ones hitting the news. They're they're all over. It's what we spend our summer doing. Um, some of them stay as small as a tenth of an acre, and we have to hike in you know 15, 20 miles to put those out, or someone will jump or do that. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's good. It's good to be aware of that, and kind of where my experience comes in, comes with that. I my background, I always tell everybody, you know, I was a Forest Service brat. I was with the Forest Service for around a decade or so. Uh, my first year or two were not in wildland fire. They were a mix of uh, construction, trail building, um, a shoot and wreck. And then we found, uh, then I found wildland firefighting. And once we could get the red card and get in there, then it was off to the races with uh, district crews, hand crews, shot crews, um, and just kind of trying to keep rising in that area until we got to the point where I was only being able to be home eight nights a summer and I have a husband and a dog and a pet bearded dragon and we love the outdoors and just I wanted to do I wanted to do more in it not in a work capacity and so then I came back and we tried to start uh, tried to start firebreak management so our goal is to educate our public first and foremost because I feel like um, people you just don't know what you don't know and I feel like that's a big start for wildland fire safety and just wildland fires in general um, as climate's changing, and I don't like to get political or label anything, but the summers are getting longer, hotter, and drier as a whole. Um, fortunately for Montana, this isn't a bad one yet. Um, we still definitely have time for that to change. Everybody's being smart. We haven't had any bad lightning, uh, dry lightning storms, but that's something that can definitely change now that it's it's late July. So kind of just being aware of that is, is kind of the goal. Yeah, um, and, you know, you're... So I just watched a film on Wednesday night. Uh, the name of the film is a documentary called Elemental Reimagining Wildfire. And I, I watched it in part to prepare for this podcast. And I'm so glad I did because, you know, it gave me a better sense of current management theory and um, I, it really where you fit in um, with your business now. Because, um, you know, one of the, at least the thinking that came across in that episode was, with increasing number of wildfires and the bigger fires, like in some of the massive like town destruction that's occurred, like one of the keys is fire. I'm not going to say fireproofing, but mitigating the risk of fire with structures. And so that is what fire break management does, right? Like that's, that's your business's theme. Um, and to go back to kind of what you said earlier about still doing firefighting to tag that in. So we do a lot of burning, um, prescribed burning, pile burning in the spring and fall. And then as summer hits in that season, we kind of grow out of it as the seasons change um, and green up begins. That's when we switch full focus into educating our community. And by doing that, it's the free assessments. It's going out on each property and saying individually, hey, you want to live here? This is a beautiful home. How can we get you as close to that? I'd say 98%. It's a natural disaster. 2% is probably leaving generous to us to get to, quite honestly. But the tactics that we can do from years of experience of being in and around homes and, and doing that mitigation, whether it be dropping some select trees, thinning branches, thinning brush, um, giving buffer room away from the structure. Um, and then just stuff we don't do is the education piece, you know, like clean your gutters out, keep your lawn green. That's not something we necessarily will help clean the gutters out, but, you know, keeping the lawn green. And we just talk about all those in their particular house and their location and how that works. And we just try to give them a really good rundown of how to be the most prepared they can be 
on their property and still enjoy the reasons they moved there. May it be privacy, scenery, or maybe a, a tree grandpa planted they used to visit that just can't go even though it's next to house. Well, how can we make that tree as safe as possible if we're not willing to part with it? So we're not necessarily getting everybody to, you know, that perfect percentage, but we're educating people where they can decide, you know, how much they want to do, why they chose to live there. And it's just a, it's a comfort thing. And I always talk to people about their lens. I come through everything with a wildland firefighting lens and other people come through things with a privacy lens or a, Mm -hmm. they want the forest to just be filled in green or wildlife. And, and as we, we start to talk and develop this process, we realize that all of these lenses can really overlap and we can get the goal we're after and truly keep everything in play. It's not, I think when we first show up on site, a lot of people are expecting us to say, we need to clear cut the property no green within 100 feet of the home and that's and that's not what we're doing and that's not what wildfires need Um, i would say we are catching up on a problem we created um, by doing the best you can you know everybody is always doing the best they can with the info we have and that's that's kind of what's happened with wildland fire in the u.s is years of the forest service got very very good at suppression and so we have a lot of what we'd call fuel loading so a lot of these homes that we go to just have years of neglect and we Um, We have a tendency to call that natural, but we kind of forget natural actually started way, way before we had homes here and fire did come through and cleaned up all that timber and burned it out. And we just never, we never thought the wiser. And we see these forests getting bigger and bigger with as trees fall, you know, they just sit, they can only rot so fast. And yeah, I could go, I could go on and we get into carpet loading. (laughs) I I think um, something I'd like to do for all of us and for our listeners is like, I'm going to, in a, in a synopsis, like super short, but uh, is try to recap the theory as, as I understood it from the documentary. Right. And have you correct anything? Because I think for, <laughs> right. For, for vehicle base, adventure, overlanding for everything, all, everyone we're addressing who's heading into the outdoors in the summer to have fun, um, to have campfires, to cook all the things that we do. Right. To understand the big picture of where fire managers are coming from, and then we bring it down to how where we fit into that as recreators, right? And so, like, the big picture that I saw now is what, what managers are trying to do is as much as they reasonably can, because it's risky, you know, fires can get out of control, etc., um, they are trying to do prescribed controlled burning as opposed to only thinning. Um, and they have found that by doing that, you know, the fire, the, the long-term fire danger is actually mitigated. And a lot of the thinning practices that we were hoping would be effective in reducing fire risk and the spread of a wildfire weren't as effective as we had hoped. So the mitigation theory, right, by prescribed burning and then trying to encourage and educate homeowners who live in and around fires um, even in you know valleys and towns like this, because embers can travel so far, to do some basic things to fire, make their their house and property more fire resistant. Yep. Does that sound right? You nailed it. Yeah. There's definitely okay. the stages. There's in the three in a really short like you did. There's not doing anything. There's just thinning, and then there's thinning with fire. And there's tons. If people want to see kind of examples, just Google those three stages, and it's actually phenomenal how much they have from many different states of 
what an untreated home looks like when a fire comes in or just a property, a forest that you know that you might go be recreating in and then what a forest looks like when it's um, been limbed up and then what a forest looks like when it's been limbed and thinned and then burned. Um, it just, it does a phenomenal job. Again, we get back to naturally, we're hardening the forest the mm -hmm. way it was always meant to harden and we can look back in the trees and... Explain hardening in the, in the context of what you're using. Thank you, sorry. No, it's okay. Um, hardening <laughs> in the sense of when there's, uh, I use the campfire analogy for people and that's a perfect segue into this is... Love it. When we've got a little campfire, um, we all kind of know innately or we figure out very quickly if it's our first campfire that the campfire is going to start with those small little twigs we're finding on the ground or the dead ones we can snap off the trees really quick. Um, we know we can build a fire. Most of us don't come out there with a full log um, and just throw it in the campfire pit and try to put a match on it. We kind of know instinctually and again from experience most all of us that have a campfire somewhere. And that's kind of the same ideal with wildfire. So by hardening, what we can do is we try to eliminate those smaller um, sticks or fuels, if you will, if you want to use the, the language. And then the fire can roll through there a lot slower with a lot less intensity. And again, kind of circling back when you start that fire, you know, if there's a bunch of limb dead little limbs on a tree that you would snap off to build a campfire, I call it just giving, a, in layman's terms, I call it giving the tree a haircut. And the fire can't travel up those little <laughs> limbs. But if it's just that big log, like you wouldn't put in your campfire, it's going to do the same thing. It, it can light, but it's going to take a lot of time and intensity. So by hardening, we get rid of all those, and we can get into like, you know, 10-hour fuels, 100-hour fuels, 1,000-hour fuels. They're how quick things burn. If we can go ahead and eliminate all of that and then either completely take it out, mulch it in, chip it, and just bring that intensity so we make a big stick that goes down to an an inch by inch piece, that kind of intensity is just going to stay low and burn. And not only does it help hardening as far as the, the trees go and helps them stay not burned up, it also rejuvenates the soil, the, the plant life, uh, wildlife mm -hmm. loves it. And then by, by all of those factors coming in, that's another situation where you can attest to just hardening. Now we get more native species growing in instead of non-natives that burn a lot differently. Uh, we can get the shrubs that don't throw flames as much. They'll be gone. And then when we have that whole canopy cleared out like that, animals come in and they forage and then they eat things down and it just keeps everything down. Versus when things get really overgrown, animals can't get in there. They don't touch it. Things just keep building. Um, so I, I'm bad at doing short stories, but that's in a sense kind of what hardening means in the eyes of a firefighter is just clearing out those low fuels that help big big fires and right because like in on your website like i was fascinated by the massive variety of intensities of fires like you know yeah. like the, the the degrees of the fires were burning at were just it was like wow okay so one of the things you're doing with his management practice is preventing those fires that are so extremely hot mm -hmm. they're they're therefore extremely destructive. Yep. Preventing them from getting to that size, to that heat. Um, as fire gets bigger and builds more, it's sucking more and more oxygen into it and it starts pending the type of areas it's burning in. And probably don't have time to get into all of that, but it can really throw flames way out in front of it. And that's kind of the big fear. Again, back into our goals of this podcast, if you're out in the woods, it's something to be aware of with a lightning strike. It's not just going to come down and creep and just like come up and say hey it's going to be if it's a lightning strike it's going to be in that tree not only is it going to be dropping fire below it onto all that needle cast it's going to be throwing fire from the top of it most likely because definitely if you're having lightning there's a really good chance you're having wind 
Um, and it's just, that's where mm -hmm. they really take off. It starts blowing, it's already in the canopy and it just starts moving and those fire brands can go, usually not miles, but they can go miles. <laughs> I have a little bit of an aside story here. Um, my husband has a has a, a degree in hydrology, a master's degree in hydrology, and his um, the, his thesis project um, kind of goes hand in hand with this. But it was about um, after you clear the forest and you've done a good job of removing all of that um, the smaller brush and things that catch very quickly. In places like where we live, we live in Flagstaff, Arizona, and you guys are clearly in Montana. Um, when you have larger expanses between the trees, so you're in your canopy. And the snow comes and settles on top of the trees, right? More snow can then actually land on the ground versus staying up in the trees. And so if you can imagine a, um, a branch in the wintertime that is covered in snow and the snow, that big pile of snow actually has like 360 degrees of air around it, right? More of that snow is actually evaporating into the air than it is actually seeping into the ground water table if it lands on the ground. So th theoretically... And this is what his thesis proved, which I thought to be fascinating. Um, if you clear more trees and you have less of a dense canopy, um, more water actually seeps into your groundwater table, which is great to help um, rejuvenate the forest after you cut and grow more grasses and, like you said, things for the wildlife to eat and everything. Um, so it's just super fascinating to listen to all of this. And it makes me think about, like, as, as a uh, forest user from camping to just exploring like we'll just go out for a day and you know have a bonfire whatever it may be um the safest places to start a campfire like what do you like how does that i i don't know like in my opinion i'm always looking for a pre-established ring especially in like a national forest yeah and i'm like you know just jumping in like what you just added right with with a description of of the thesis that you you know that involves hydrology and fire management or not management but like just what's going on there with with the watershed and fires um, i like the the whole point here big picture for listeners is so when we head out there to do our thing and recreate we have a sense of of what's going on in the eyes of fire managers and 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 forest management in general that big picture i think will help us be more mindful of what we're doing and um that that so if anyone's wondering well why are we talking about the intricacies right of of forest management and fire management it's to give us the big picture before we get into the weeds of the things that we do right and and how we fit into this management picture well i think if anybody who's going to go out into the forest and utilize that as our recreation grounds you know we are um part of the management of that and so it's to do our part is to be as safe as as safe as we can be and aware of what um like what are our repercussions of of camping and driving and um the the risks that we are t are assuming as we go to play in the forest um so we just need to be aware of what's going on and leah you're down there in flagstaff arizona yes. and i you know, Montana, we get really nervous about fire usually around now. Um, and Jess's website was talking, you know, the fire season, um, August and mid-September usually is really when it's at its peak. But in Arizona, like, what's the vibe down there? Like, is it always a concern somewhat? Uh, yes. Yeah, so so I live in Flagstaff, Arizona, which is at 7,000 feet elevation. Um, it is very forested. We live in the largest um ponderosa pine forest in the world um so this is not exactly like the desert um, we are the high desert so um but not like phoenix 
Tucson, et cetera. Um, so fire is absolutely on our minds at all times. Like it's just dry here. Um, so as much as it looks like a forest, we have no water basically. Um, and for an example, we have one small mountain range in the background of Flagstaff and um, someone started um, a human started forest fire. I won't go into details because it wasn't a great situation for our town, but a large portion of our um, mountains burned. I think it was two years ago. And the repercussions of that is the neighborhoods that are below at the base of the mountains are now being extremely flooded every time we get a monsoon. Like catastrophic flooding happens and it comes in the form of a uh, flash flood essentially um and it, it's like it could happen every week for weeks as the monsoon season comes but it's all because the mountains no longer have the vegetation to withhold that water from the the monsoons um so yes it's always on our mind it's very very dry here and it's something that um is wildly talked about um from you know if you want to go camping in the Coconino National Forest the Kaibab National Forest and they are prescribed burns going on you have to consider which way the wind is blowing if you're going to get smoked out like it, it comes down to like a million different factors and then there's signs everywhere from you know no fire ban or level one level two level three fire bans and what does that mean and um you know whether it can be a charcoal um, grill or no fire whatsoever. Um, we also never have fireworks. Like don't come to Flagstaff for 4th of July. There's no fireworks here ever. Um, but yes, it's, it is dangerous. And I do think like for our listeners, as much as you guys are in Montana, like this pertains to everywhere that we go. And especially like I hold this near and dear to my heart because of the repercussions that my neighborhood is now having because of a man that caused fire. Yeah. And this is like, you know, an international phenomenon. So overlanders heading to Australia to go overlanding Africa, uh, even, you know, down in Latin South America. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is, you're heading up to Alaska through Canada. I mean, all of it, you know, fires are going to be an issue you need to be aware of. And what you just mentioned about prescribed burns, Leah, like that, that's a reason to understand management policy. I'm thinking, I really love Jess to speak to this because this jumped out at me at that, um, at that documentary, which was, you know, they, they were warning us that we had all the leading officials in the Valley doing a Q and a after the documentary. And they were like, Hey, everybody just know we're doing prescribed burn work. So when you head out, you know, it might be in September, October, but get ready to see smoke. You're going to have to see smoke sometime of the year because we're doing this work, which was a revelation to me, right? Cause I just see smoke and figure, Oh man, a fire started and it's a problem, but I have no idea. It's a prescribed burn. So like, how can we be more aware of what's going on with prescribed burns? Like what resources are yeah, out what there? What are the public resources? Yeah. 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 And, um, uh, yeah. Uh, something that comes to mind, I think, is NCWeb. That's a good one for the public. Um, we used it sometimes on the inside, but it's an incident management system for the whole U.S. And so at any point, you can just pull up NCWeb. There's actually a link on our website for it. Yeah. And um, you pull that up and you can look at where you're traveling and it'll show you all the incidents going on, whether it's a, a medical, a prescribed burn, a pile burn, a wildfire. Um, and you can really check that out in your area before you're going um, and worst case scenario, if you don't, you know, you don't have access to that, it's hard to imagine, you know, maybe not having that internet access, but having a phone. You can also always stop in or call your local ranger district wherever you're visiting. Um, the U.S. the Forest Service has just hundreds of offices um, all throughout different forest regions, and there's always someone there willing to help. Um, it's one of the big things that's kind of taken over the budget, so it's a hot topic. It's like how, yeah, any anytime the public comes in wanting to know about anything wildfire, it's all hands on deck. Let's educate. 
Um, it's one of those natural disasters that have, we've kind of waited to educate more on like how we do on hurricanes and tornadoes. Everyone's really aware of that, but this, it's starting to come to the forefront now. So yeah, I think that's, that's a really good stroke anytime before you go camping, check trail closures, check road closures. Those are going to determine your moves. And if you happen to sneak into an area, but there was a fire um, near it, just be cognizant. Like Leah was saying, if there's, you know, fire could be moving, they, the Forest Service or the DNRC, the BLM, um, private contractors, there's tons of people doing this work, NRCS, um, they could come in and actually ask you to evacuate. That's also happened to us on rivers. It's just, it's time to move. We've been blocked out of rivers for fire. Um, it started two hours before we got there. And unfortunately, it's one of those things we're just always always keeping aware of this time of year, but also we're talking about other countries. We're not just talking about Montana. So yeah, Australia's fire season is is a slightly different time than us. We keep it local. California's season um, is different. Canada's is different. Arizona and Montana have drastically different fire season peaks. Um, We start to hit our peak in Montana right when the monsoons start in Arizona. Um, so that's common for like Montana firefighters to be down south and then come back for our season. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is, it is like adventurers and overlanders, recreators, <laughs> right? If we we can be mindful of when those peaks are and and plan our travels accordingly. Abs- absolutely. But always, um, you know, not being afraid of it, but just keeping it as part of your checklist. You know, if you know you're going to. Um, the southern U.S., you know, you're, you're definitely looking to see if there's going to be, like, if is it tornado season or is it that. And just keep in mind, you know, Colorado had a extremely bad fire a couple of years ago in the middle of winter around Christmas. And California is one of those big ones, too. The so- southern U.S. is always doing prescribed burning management. So if you're recreating down there, I mean, that's check that out because they're... Southern U.S., you mean southwest or southeast? Uh, southeast. Okay. They're doing prescribed burns pretty much year-round. You can go there from November to March, and they're just burning, constantly burning and trying to manage. They they burn more any than anywhere. We don't hear about it much because most of it's prescribed, but they actually have more fire acres on the ground yearly than anywhere in the U.S. And Web would cover that, too, so yep. if I'm traveling pretty much anywhere, that's exactly. Gonna... Yep, NCWeb is kind of your key to find any... Any situation in particular fires. Is it yep. international too? You know, I uh, I don't know. I have only fought fire outside of the U.S. once, and it was in Canada. Okay. Um, and I am not sure if they could track us on NC Web. Okay, cool. <laughs> it, it, uh, is NC Web also a good resource for like what current um, regulations are at that moment? So like we are getting those different levels fire of fire restrictions. Nope, so that's um, all going to be local. And I would say your local Forest Service office is the best one for that or the local office to where you're traveling. Um, just even in this podcast, how much we keep hitting, you know, Montana and Arizona and how they burn similarly, but so different. The fires are different. What they burn is different. How they burn is different. So yeah, just really keeping up with that local area. And then as you're traveling outside the country, you know, I don't know, um, Forest Service is obviously a U.S. based thing. Um, but we know from just the last few years of firefighting, all these countries have major firefighting teams, very similar to the Forest Service. They're just called something else. Um, and so maybe just checking checking in with that before you really go and do anything. Just, it's a, It can be a sneaker. Yeah, well, yeah I believe it. <laughs> and so, like, if you're going to come recreate in the Gallatin National Forest, say, surrounding Bozeman here, um, you could get online, I'm guessing, and go yep. to their website, and they'll post any kind of, like, what the fire danger level is and any, like, stage one, they stage will. two. Yep, and they'll be posting, too, if there's any if any current incidents and closures. Um, most times when we go out to fires in different forests, the forest is getting closed, trails are getting closed, campgrounds are getting closed. Um, just 
when there's a fire around, it's pretty neat to see and take photos of, and lots of the public like to do that. But that gets into a big, a big risk for not only the public, but all emergency providers. If one person in the public gets tracked, it diverts, you know, a good chunk of our emergency personnel that was going to a fire to help the public. And, you know, it's life, life is always, is always the utmost. So, yeah, try to try to avoid areas like that have closures, even camping on the fringes of them. It's just challenging. Everyone's not there to keep photographers out. It's really there to just keep lives safe and areas safe. And then we can make the best impact we can, um, because sometimes putting out a fire for us is making what's called a bigger box and we're going to burn. And the fire might be contained yeah. here and we're going to just open that up into a safer area and burn everything inside of it so it can't escape that area. Um, so yeah, anytime, anytime you're around a fire, just give it a good, a good berth. There's lots of aircraft, lots of helicopters, lots of personnel, um, and using tons of heavy equipment that I could start naming, but no one will know the names of that are so specific just to firefighting. Don't fire be flying fighting. your drones around. Definitely fires. not. Yeah, they actually have that aerial problem. Um, actually a lot too with just um, fun pilots trying to fly and see and it's that airspace gets closed the forest gets closed the airspace gets closed um, it's it's all closed and it's not to keep people's photos out or fun it's it's for life protection and having unrestricted people in forest or airspace really changes things when we're getting ready to start a burn and suddenly there's a surprise fire uh, it's a move fast but move slow game so what I what I hear you saying and kind of what I'm taking from this, Jess, for all of us as recreators is this is a situational awareness piece in part like we would be aware of any, you know, lots of things when we head out to go into the backcountry. You know, what's the snowpack like? What's the weather forecast? Mm-hmm. What's the trail condition? I even am wondering, I think Onyx might even have some things about wildfire closures now for their off-road app. I know they got a lot of that on their hunt app. But I just hear it's like here's one more you know, box to check, like you said, when you're planning an adventure to, you know, get on InsaWeb, get familiar with what's going on with fires. Yep. So that begs my question. Um, as we are recreators and we are all gear junkies, right? I don't know how much that's just overlanding, right? We all want to have like the fanciest, coolest techie stuff. Um, in terms of having fires, like a campfire in this, I mean, maybe this is a double-edged or a two-sided question, like between um, outdoor cooking and then you also let your actual campfires yeah so we kind of touched on that before we even started this podcast we were kind of talking about all those all those different contraptions they make now for fires. And I think the most common that comes to mind easily is the the solo stove. That's a really nice contained one. Um, we're still dealing with, with live fire though. So there's a lot of those contraptions like that, that really, those are supposed to be like, you know, those smokeless systems. And those are fantastic. Those are designed to keep the sparks kind of in, it circles back, it re-regulates. And then there's one um, we use, it's actually, okay. This, it's really cool. It's extra stuff to carry, but we'll carry it when there's absolutely like, a lot of times the restriction will be like no open flame or just no fires, period. So this kind of fills that void. It's this metal, um, this metal tin and it has these like porous fake fire rocks in it and it creates an actual fake fire for you and you can warm up on it. It's like, it's, it's incredible and it's propane driven and then you just turn it off. That's cool. 
So there isn't actually a flame. It's yeah, it's a real fake flame. I, I know that sounds really contradictory. It's it's yeah. really neat. I kind of wish I would have just brought it to show you guys. It's in our garage and it's so cool. <laughs> So where these really shine too is like the LNT, the leave no trace. And that's a big part of like different styles of like, I know a lot of different forests we all recreate in our leave no trace is a big practice. And so that's really where we start getting into like the NRS fire pan, the solo stove, the Henniger. Um, those don't, they don't leave anything and you can just clean up the Henniger. You dump, you dump your portable rocks back in your bucket. The NRS fire pan, you wait till the pan cools off, you lift it up and you dump it out in a bucket and you just keep carrying those scraps with you as you go. And it does, then you can have a fire and there's, it's a true LNT practice. There's, there's no trace of anything or like the solo sova that doesn't burn the ground when you're done with it. And you guys mentioned the other ones like the Ignic and just there's so many different ones out there that really can help not only not having your sparks out, but the big leave no trace thing too, which is pending where we're going is, is huge, especially in like, say like a wilderness area or something. And that maybe you've parked on the edge of as an overlander and you've, you know, you've walked in a way, so that might not be as pertinent, but leave no trace is a big practice and pending how much you want to hit on that. Yeah. That, and like that, that, that unit you were talking about is the Henniger, yep. right? Uh, portable fire pit it's a propane powered and it has like hot rocks in it it's all kind of self-contained you set it up hook it up and go um, and I totally hear you with a lot of these devices it, I mean we're helping in two ways we're reducing our risk of starting a fire and we're also reducing our impact on the campsite so there's a lot of good stuff happening with these devices and we'll be sure in the show notes to have links to a variety of these so people can take a look at what we're talking about. Um, I think the solo stove even has a spark arrester on top of it. They, yeah. It's an option. Leah, have you, do you work with any of these kinds of devices? Uh, I have a solo stove, but it is a larger one. So I keep it in the backyard. It's not something that I would want to throw in our four wheel camper. It's just too bulky and big. Um, that being said, in the backyard, it is a wonderful tool. Um, and a smaller version, I know they come in different sizes, um, would be definitely something that I would add to our list if that was something that we did often. Um, around here, like if we're just camping locally, more often than not, it seems, especially later in the summer, you just can't have a fire at all. Like open flames are just not allowed. And um, I mean, so yeah. we just kind of skip it. When we had Chris and Lindbergh on recently, this will be a fun one to move into now. Um, their, their handle, Instagram, uh, uh, YouTube is Gone Durton. And they are on the Overland, uh, on our ex-Overland network. They're, they're doing a show for us now on cooking. Uh, called Gone Cooking, and they're so they're they're culinary experts, right? They're gore, they're like Overlander gourmands, and uh, Limburg in particular, he's South South Korean, um, and he he does all kinds of Korean barbecues. I mean, like his his truck guy, like you want him in camp, right? But these guys, when they were talking about, they're from L.A. originally, and they do a lot of overlanding and adventure travel around California, and like they were kind of astonished when Leah and I were talking to him and I was talking to him about Montana, like that we could even have a fire, like their MO as well, because we can't have fires anymore. And it was like, wow, like they're they're They must be going in some restricted areas, but since they're really into cooking, right. They were trying to explain like Lindbergh was really hopeful that induction cooking would show up in the overlanding world and some things. And so I think I want to just move into that. Like 
for people who want to head into the backcountry, have a nice camp, maybe they're wild camping too. So they're more in a place like where we're sitting with a lot of grass uh, than an established campground. What are some ways to re- mitigate fire risk when you're cooking um, in, in camp and, you know, in these kind of forest backcountry locations? You know, so... One of the big things that comes to mind for that and something we always do, and you've mentioned specifically grasses, is, you know, if you've got a jet boil or you've got your camp stove, that it's not it's not necessarily on the ground. Um, I think oh, I've seen a lot of people do that in the backcountry, trying to reduce wind and make it the safest. You can, you can buy um, different, like, metal shelters for things like that just to keep it up. So, yeah, the wind's hitting it, but then it's not, um, like, the grass isn't right on any of your flame. It's kind of up or trying to pick a rocky area. Or worst case, you know, if it's some, it's the time of year and you're you're really worried about it, you know, I am a big advocate of always, like, you can make gravel, you can make dirt. We've talked about shovels and moving things. Like, we're getting kind of extreme now, right? And if you're that worried, like, maybe there's a better, maybe it's a better tactic. I don't I might have you speak a, a bit more to that. I mean, just really with uh, the different stoves and cooking. Because if, if I get scared personally and we're not we're not comfortable with it, it's something we come out with uh, the pre-cooked game. And maybe it's just all we're going to do is boil water for coffee and tea. And then while we're at it, we're going to souffle it. And it's the quickest, easiest. You've got water going and a tiny flame. And that's kind of what we do a lot in restrictions. Tiny flame meaning like a butane, like a jet boil or something? Yeah, either that we use, um, there's so many different kinds of like the camp chef stoves or other things that are really built to keep it. Um, the one we use, I should pause again because I suck at remembering things. It's all right. It's uh, just describe it. We'll try to help and fill in. Like, I appreciate yeah. that. It folds right up. It's, um, is that like the jet boil now has one that folds up like it's a two burner. Yeah orange like folds up looks pretty slick and they're Uh, all really similar we have the two and the four burner and it still folds up in a suitcase and it has high metal sides and you hook it right up to your propane and everything in there stays contained in the metal and it's all metal graded around it we've had really good luck with those Um, we do a lot of camping but for us a lot of our camping comes from the raft um, so our yeah. stuff is raft branded. Well, see, and and I, <laughs> I personally think overlanding is high, is very analogous to whitewater rafting because, you know, you're running the river for the fun of running the river. Uh, eating well and beautiful camps is a big part of it. And you have all this kit with you, right? And it's like the overland rig is kind of like a raft for land is kind of how I started to see it. I would 100% agree with that. <laughs> a lot of the gear just transfers right over, it's, you know? It is the furthest thing from backpacking. It's glamping. Your raft is your car and all the beer goes in, all the fire safe stuff, the saw goes in, the shovel goes in, sleeping gear. I'm going to start referring to it as land rafting. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's, it's, yeah, that's, wow, that's a great little name for it. That's exactly what it is. And we, and we end up in those, those same kind of places that the fire restrictions are huge and everything next to it's really dry. And typically when we're rafting, we're in the same kind of country as we're going into these corridors and we happen to be in the wilderness that is tight and dry because it's a canyon. So that's something with cooking. We've had really good luck with all of that. So that's that's making me think like um, rafting, right? More often than not, you're on the water and you have a water resource right next to you. So if something does get out of control on the banks or whatever, you can just run and hopefully get a bucket and put it out or whatever. Um, let's say like, especially for us here in Arizona, uh, you know, you're, we're camping, doing whatever, and something gets a little bit out of control. Um, what is the, What are the tools that we should have on board to quickly mitigate a fire situation? 
do you have like a fire extinguisher recommendation or anything like that? You know, I think that for the layperson, having a fire extinguisher is always going to be a good choice because you're traveling in a vehicle and there's about a hundred ways to start a fire with a vehicle. Um, I want to get into some of those in a minute. So yeah, yeah. but just kind of speaking on that, a simple, a shovel in a bucket, um, having a hotshot background, you know, people tease us, you know, we're the ground pounders. We fight fire without water. That's kind of what we do. That's our thing. And it's, it's, it's digging, it's digging line. And then, but the basic concept of that is, you know, using the soil and the dirt, getting down to bare mineral soil. And that's why usually when you're digging down for a fire pit, it's that nice, cool, wet soil. It's the same thing. So a lot of times, you know, you talk about rafting. We don't use water a lot of times to put out our fires rafting because we're carrying all that out with us. So we're mixing soil into it, getting it refined, and then kind of almost filtering all the ash and the bad back out of it and putting that in a bucket cool and dry. And then we can pack it out a lot easier. Um, so using dirt um, and be, be mindful digging down. You know, you don't want to mix in, um, you know, uh, leaves or sticks or twigs. Then you're kind of defeating your purpose and your fire will have more things to feed. But fire can't burn dirt. Um, that's a good one. That's always going to be a major firefighting tactic, whether it's for the layperson or for the wildland firefighter. Um, dirt is our friend. And when we can scrape down to bare mineral soil and you've got a fire you want to put out and you can just get a couple of scoops of dirt on it and just start turning it up, you will definitely take a lot of heat out of that and its potential to spread. It needs it needs something combustible to spread. So that's another thing, too, as we talk about, you know, the fire pit, if you're going to to have one and it's not already contained, um, you know, dig that out a little bit, maybe put some rocks around it because fire doesn't burn through dirt and rocks. And you can kind of shore that up and give it a little buffer. Maybe the weeds don't hang into it. You you have your pit and then you have another foot of, of nice, cold, cool, just bare mineral soil. That can really help a lot too in the backcountry. Yeah, you know, uh, and it, ha- it was helpful too because I, I mean, current thinking in high use areas is leaning more and more toward avoiding fire pits or at least making sure you use the one that's already in place. Don't go building more of them. But the reality is with some wild camping locations, um, it's okay to build a fire pit on, on occasion if you're really in, in a certain, you know, remote enough. And it might be your only option. You know, I'm thinking someone hiking even or backcountry hunting. Um, and so I thought it was useful to hear like what is best practice for a fire pit itself if you ha- if you are going to do that and digging into the mineral dirt and the rocks and why that won't spread why a well built fire pit is still can be useful. Yeah, and one of the things too again we and I talked to this to our homeowners we're talking in percentages a lot of times but the really mindful person too you know you're you're obviously not going to want to build your fire next to trees you're going to want to get a more open space. Um, but doing that, how far are the trees? And as you dig your hole down, are you hitting a root? Because fires love roots and they get inside that and then it disappears and the root will get cooler. And it's actually traveling up it. Um, anyone in Alaska can tell you about that. They typically, if they have a bad fire season, will have tons of what they call holdover fires. And everyone can imagine Alaska winter. It goes underground in those root systems and it just slowly keeps burning. And then when the spring comes back, you'll see a smoke and it was a holdover fire from last season. And, and it could wow, travel a ways away from that. So that's, it's a little thing and it's not likely with just your little campfire. We kind of circle back on intensity, heat, and you're probably only having your campfire for a few hours. It's not a lot of intensity, but it's just, again, it's something to be cognizant of that, you know, that can happen. So how do we know when our campfire is out? Like, you know, put it out, extinguish it. We're talking dirt. We're talking water. Like, 
uh, as overlanders and, you know, anyone with a vehicle, it's, it's pretty common to carry five to 10 gallons of water. Uh, my four wheel camper has a 20 gallon tank, you know, as that's filled off. And I have a, from the white water, the rafting world, I have one of those collapsible buckets, like the Hypalon buckets. And, um, so I'll just fill that with a couple gallons of water and have it five feet from the fire. Uh, so that's one thing, but, and I'll use that to put it out, but it's like, okay, I want to hear from you. We want to put out the fire. We want to make sure it's dead out, as they say. What's best practice? Well, Smokey says that if you can touch it, it's not going to burn anything. (laughs) At least Smokey tells firefighters that. If you can have it in your hand, it's not going to go away. And that's something we call call cold trailing. Um, And it'd be the same thing we would expect you to do with a a campfire out in the woods. Um, Water is going to be your best case scenario always. And if you don't have the luxury of having it, that's when we get more into that dirt. But even when you have water, pouring it on that campfire, stirring it around, getting some dirt in there or at least stirring the water around it's going to steam and smoke for a while you know don't try to touch anything like that right away we'll get into burns and maybe some first aid stuff later if need be but making sure when that's dead out if you can touch something it will not spark something else if you can touch it Um, so it's a lot of times when we're cold trailing on big fires when we're securing an edge of a fire line we're literally just putting our hands every two feet, three feet in the dirt, sometimes to the point where if you went out, you could literally see a crew crawling on their hands and knees, just touching everything when we're going 100%. And at the end of the day, if you can touch your pit, you're safe. If you can't touch it, it's not dead out. Um, and it might be that there is a, just a hot rock right underneath that soil, and that's just going to keep steaming and smoking. While that won't necessarily cause a fire, just dig it up and, and find out. A lot of times we'll dig up a steaming hole that we've put water on a ton and it seems like it's still burning. And then sure enough, you dig out five rocks that are just steaming. And once you get those out, the hole cools right off. So just kind of those are things that hold, you know, that hold heat. Maybe there's a duff layer you didn't quite dig down and now it's burning into that. Just dig that out. If you can touch kind of all of that and put your hand in it, that's the fire's dead out. It's a great test. I agree, Leah. Like that, that was, like she said that, it was just like, yes, that is the educational piece I was looking for. Cause I've, ne- I've never had, I've never heard that. Right. Uh, and I, I pour the water in there and I'm like, oh, that's looking out, but like touch it. Like, am I really comfortable putting my hand in there? And if I'm not, it's not dead out. I love that. Okay. So earlier you mentioned a hundred different ways you can start a fire with a vehicle. Being that, you know, that is really our our audience um, specifically, right? We're the vehicle-based adventuring crowd, like to use our vehicles to access the backcountry, make really nice camps, maybe do some wheeling, which you were telling me before the podcast, I was like, you are so perfect for this because well, you're a Toyota person, which we love, of course, uh, but you're like, do some wheeling. You, you do a lot of the things that we do here. Um, and so I, I think uh, if we could get into what to be aware of with your vehicle in terms of fire starts like how can how can you start a fire with your vehicle and how do you prevent that some of the most common ones we've seen actually start wildfires that uh, continue on is a vehicle uh, just um, whether it be an overlanding vehicle or even just a car pulling off on the side of the road in a really dry season in their muffler our muffler is too hot and it can start really dry fire um, so like the grass around us here, where we're sitting. You're starting, yeah, you're starting to out. see that trend more on the interstate where it's actually mowed down two to three feet. You're starting to see that everywhere, and that's four vehicles pulling over. Um, chains, you know, their, their mufflers going. 
Um, and I guess I, I say there's a hundred and then I let a converter. Yeah. Right. Like that. So yep. under, like, even if you're yep. like, oh, well, I'm not going to park. I'm just going to drive over this dry, tall grass real quick. Yep. Just turning around. That, as I understand it, like that exhaust system under your vehicle can be so dang hot that, you know, if it's dry enough. I have actually been on a ton of roadway fires just from a vehicle. And there's so many, so many different ways. Just like I said, I, I don't even. I personally don't know them all because I'm usually on the end fighting them. You're right, right. But the ones we just talked about, those are the ones that, you know, that instantly come to mind. And then chains, whenever a truck's towing, that's a huge one. Towing. Make, making sure your chains oh. are rolled up and wrapped so they can't drag or they're not just slamming each other and then sparking. Then you pull over um, brakes that are starting to go out that you're not being mindful of. Um, brakes getting super hot maybe even like i'm thinking you know yeah. if people are riding their brakes like instead of using engine braking and devices like that just the other day our own company i was coming down from big sky from a project and i looked in the rear view mirror and, and our brakes were smoking oh, and uh, what that was was just a quick electrical issue that came out of nowhere we've ran this chipper and driven it tons of times this has never happened before and some electrical issue was something happened and it was triggering this even when it wasn't pulled and just being you know always when you're mindful right we're always looking at our when we're driving it's the most dangerous thing we do but something as simple as that and as i was looking around to pull over big sky has tall grasses everywhere and it took us a while with these smoke and brakes to find a gravel turnout i was like sam we've got to find a turnout for this and sure enough yeah the brakes were just locking up and we just ended up on connect disconnecting the battery to fix that short uh just to get home and then actually fix the problem um, vehicle wise, but those little things, you know, we don't always think of it's, and that's easy in my head. Interesting. I was like, shoot, the chipper's got to go out tomorrow. Wasn't even, you know, and we do wildland fire. Yeah. It's like, man, we could, and it was my employee who was like, Hey, be super careful where you pull over. That's going to start off. I'm like, of course, Sam, like you're absolutely right. Um, and it's those little things, you know, you don't ever think of that your vehicle's running perfect. And then vehicles always have, you know, yeah, there's always something. <laughs> But that's um, that was a really surprising one that just happened on Tuesday. And I was yeah, like, wow, we that's... have like in the overlanding world, we have such um, complicated systems sometimes, like electrical systems, and yeah. maybe people are DIYing some things, and you know there could be best practice there, there may not be. Um, so you could have shorts, or you know something isn't fused properly. So there, and the, and all the gear too that we're operating, you know, there are things that could uh, short out possibly, throw a spark. I just uh, I had to jump my truck battery a couple weeks ago, and I usually use a jump box, which is really helpful, and you really don't run any risk doing that. The jump box was dead, so I reached for an old school set of jumper cables, and uh, mistakenly let them touch, and had sparks fly right in my driveway. Like great example, super fast. Yep, that's another great yeah. example. It'd be an easy way to start a fire, and and again, like so, you know, when it gets super super dry. When that, when that needle and smoky bear, you're driving into the forest and it says extreme fire danger, right? That's when it just yeah, doesn't no take reason. much. Yeah. yeah. That's when you'd be really careful pulling over anywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And hunters, you know, really be mindful of that. I know that's a, a reason landowners in Montana will just even shut down like public access through the block management program until fire danger subsides because people are just unaware and they just park, will park their car over grasses and boom, you got a fire. Um, and I'd also just throw this out there to any of our listeners who ride motorcycles, adventure motorcycling. Uh, they can be even more prominent. Like I know on my bike, the exhaust and the bottom of the bike gets so hot 
that if I just rode across this grass when it was dry, I would be running the risk of starting a fire. Spark arresters in the exhaust, you know, making sure you have that going on and not riding the brakes, like you said. Yeah. I had a brake problem with my dirt bike once and I turned back and it was glowing. And it was like, wow, that is, uh, I had, would have had no idea to ride along to starting fires. Yeah, me, that's so. a good call, the motorbike. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. So I feel like we, as far as fire prevention, right, we've talked about cooking and some things to look for there, basically just being mindful of what kind of device you're using, how much flame is it's throwing out, um, you know, getting it off of dry grass, off of dry substances, just to make people feel better. When I was a total greenhorn, moved to Montana in the 90s, I was that person who had a new propane uh, grill. Grills are like another animal and put it down on the ground. And there was, the grass wasn't like tall, but it was a little dry. And next thing I knew, like there was a fire. I was starting a fire and I frantically, you know, ran around and it was windy. It's like classic case, right? And so like we can all be guilty of making all kinds of mistakes. And, you know, hopefully this podcast will prevent someone from making that mistake who's new to this game. Um, but yeah, just being mindful of what you're cooking with, where you're cooking and what the risk is. And then we talked about campfires themselves, right? What we're looking at there. And we talk about vehicles and some things to think about with your vehicle in terms of preventing a fire. Now, what, what I'd like to move toward here is we're in the back country. Like, let's say, you know, we've driven 20, 30 miles in, um, maybe there's only, you know, I, I think this is one reason you'd want to be aware of like how many points of egress do you have things like that but what i want to talk about is you're in the backcountry a big lightning storm happens or a human caused fire whatever but a wildfire starts and you're back in there what are you thinking in terms of safety and you know how to deal with that situation so my gut says just just get out don't try to to, to defend something don't try to save your if it's a last minute thing it's like a home evacuation right we're just the goal is life first we're getting out but on the terms of ingress egress you know you've we've all been there we found the really tiny windy narrow road that leads us way back to an awesome campsite it's a total Good dead end to awesome campsite right. no one's gonna find you there because they'd have to drop you know those are things when you're thinking about it, the the likelihood versus unlikelihood. You know, if you're closer to the top of the mountain, you're getting a lot more likely for that for that lightning strike um, pending the forest you're in and what, what the fuels are around you. Is this one of those forests where back to the beginning of the podcast we talked about, has it been totally untreated? Has it been just limbed and thinned? Or has it been limbed, thinned, and then burned? Because um, it's all going to respond very, very different to fire with its intensity. But I'm always a person that I think just because of being in fire, we ingress, egress is one of the number one things as firefighters we are thinking about um, as far as life goes. You know, if we can, can we get in there safely to handle that fire? And so for for recreators or homeowners, the things you guys should be doing, can we get out safely? So I always back in, even at my house in a subdivision. It just is such a force of habit, kind of always backing in um, when I've, when we're camping with the vehicle, there's usually things off to the side. Um, it's not something that's out in front. Um, and then, you know, you think about timing. If you're in, you know, a pop-up tent camper above your car or something like that you're climbing up into, it's just one of those things where we're all, we're all taking kind of those risks. But again, is that the, what kind of forestry? And if you're, again, if you're someone where you're, you're that worried, maybe it's maybe just not the best place, best place to be. Is there something that you have to 
really work hard to four wheel into this and you know it's high fire season and this area is really prone and there's a dry lightning storm coming might just not be the best place to camp but if you're already gonna be there and we're already having fun like i talked to homeowners about you chose you chose to buy this house you choose to live here so there's a lot of things you love about it and it's the same when we camp there's nothing like rolling up on a really cool campsite and typically the best ones are the ones that are this narrow winding road that has terrible ingress egress and you're out away from everyone so no one can hear you if you like yell in the woods or your bonfire gets rowdy <laughs> whatever it may be but yeah just being being aware of those things giving yourself the best opportunity maybe the picnic table doesn't get set up in front of the vehicle at bedtime and you just you know you you have an option and these are things that are kind of low on the list and I know we'd we'd look you know if if you're trapped what does that look like well maybe your one way in is is trapped well now what do you do and, and for me it's man that's uh, about the scariest situation my mind goes around I've only been there once yeah um, what do you do though like that what you know what do you do um well you try to keep calm I'm trying to think in my experience when this happened, we had fire shelters, so that was helpful. We put a hose lay around us to try to stay alive and you don't necessarily have those things. We looked at the notes of vehicles. People have lived through wildfires in vehicles. Um, most of them are steel are steel based. Um, I guess at least a lot of older ones are steel based and that can be a good barrier. People um, just trying to think of wildland uh, firefighter fatality incidents in the public. Um, as wildland firefighter, we will study consistently wildland firefighter fatalities, but not as much as the public fatalities. So I, I draw my well is more more from there, but it's it's pretty applicable. We are in that situation a little bit more, but I mean, there's all kinds of stories. I can think of the Madison Arm Fire ten or fifteen years ago. Here we had a lot of public trapped, um, and some of the guys that is, you have water. Can you get? in water there's this like um, a river or something or creek it's, nearby it's or spooky and slightly counterintuitive because coming up you know you're wet and you just think you're just going to get burned you're searing the fire's burning over but it's really um you know you go back to <laughs> this might need to be cut out but ed pulaski the the most common firefighting tool and that's when the forest service 100 years ago changed all of its tactics ed pulaski lit a fire um, at one point to save everybody. He kept everybody in a cave at one point, and he also kept everybody in a lake at one point, um, which is reeds for breathing. Um, you know, if you're really trapped, fight or flight, well, it'll definitely take over. And my suggestion wouldn't be, unless you really know what you're doing, or it's kind of like, it's either this or bust. You know, we talk about the idea of lighting a backfire. Um, we often, almost always, will fight fire with fire. It's the best tactic. Um, but it's scary advising somebody to do that who doesn't necessarily know how to directionally move a fire, but right. um, we could get as far into the weeds with that as you. I could just just a couple basics, you know, just if you were if you were trapped, right? Just a few things like that. Like, uh, is there any point in seeking higher ground? Like, if you're not too far from a ridge. Um, so there's two schools of thought with that. You can't really ever outrun a fire. Um, we can go back to, I don't know if I'm going to bring up like the fatalities, Man, Man Gulch, they tried to outrun the fire. Yeah. And these are like amazing smoke jumpers in the <laughs> yeah. best shape ever. You, and it didn't work. Yep. So I'm um, thinking again, we're just going trying to, I'm trying to keep it simple basics. Um, if you're trying to even run away from a fire in any sense, going laterally, not fire is going to go faster uphill. So when you bring about that running uphill to get to higher ground, I mean, if you're 50 yards from 
from the maybe from the top uh, because that is one thing that will as it races uphill it'll also a lot of its intensity will fall down when it gets to the top of a ridge Um, because the top of the ridge you know there's not now it's got to fall and come back down and now it's what we call it's going to slowly back down or it could spot on the other side of the ridge and then also burn that side up but typically if you're I mean, if you're at the point where it is, it is life or death, you're running away from a fire, you're trying to get to the sides of it, call it the flank or laterally go out the side of it because it'll, especially if you're by a hill, get to the side because it's going to want to go up. I mean, you've got to be really close to the top to make that work. Um, yeah. a, really good place to t- a really good place to take shelter, if you can drive your vehicle maybe a little ways but not quite get out, is uh, a road cut. When we're driving, a lot of times we're driving around the side of the mountain, fires as it comes up that hill it hits that you can it hits that road and it kind of cuts it goes over it so it kind of leaves that protection we've had a lot of firefighters live by deploying fire shelters on roadways Um, it's gravel based which is good there's no fuel Um, things if you have time they i researched this a little bit when we first started talking about it i've never heard of anyone doing this in real life but they say you know digging a hole and putting your face down trying to mimic a fire shelter Yes, anywhere you can get fuel from not around you is good, but if you have that kind of time, I think there might be better tactics maybe to employ. Correct. Um, that, that's a lot of, you've got a lot of time if you're digging a hole and putting your face on my like, man. I would be you're getting the hell out of there. You, you got a <laughs> chainsaw me. on your, your roads blocked? Like, get your chainsaw and cut a new road. Like, just okay get your chainsaw if if you're confident with something if you're confident with the chainsaw so that gets yes uh, that's another thing <laughs> for sure like having those chainsaw skills but um it what we're trying to teach here maybe is it might be worth like taking a chainsaw class learning basic skills and having one on your rig because even if you're really wheeling to get out like you're driving to get out and and the wind or the fire you know some it could have just been not fire related, but a, a tree blew down on the Forest yep. Service road. Totally. If you can hop out and zzz, cut that out of the way and keep going. Yep. Right. Yep. If you're if you're able, um, you have the weird thing with me where I also work on an ambulance, so I've seen chainsaw wow. injuries um, yeah, very personally, um, and I've seen them. I've actually not seen them personally with firefighters, but I've seen them personally with EMS. Um, fortunately, none of the folks I've ever worked with have had this issue, um, but. But chainsaws are are dangerous. I think they're in the top three for wildland firefighter killers. Um, taking trees down is 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 terrifying. Yeah, right. It can be wrong. If the I tree's guess. dead, you have no idea what it's going to do. So, moral. <laughs> well, that's kind of one of the rules of thumb that I follow as an overlander is just I don't carry a tool that I don't know how to use, even though I I might have one or it, it, theoretically it could be a good tool. Like it, it, if I don't feel safe using it, I'm not going to bring it with me. Yeah, winches. Um, you know, other recovery gear, high high lift jacks, you know? Yeah. And I just got inspired to take an actual course with and chainsaw use. So I've, I've watched a ton of videos and I've tried to learn how to do it. I've fell some trees, gathering firewood, all that. And I try to be as safe as I can, but I would feel a lot better actually being certified. Like I know you can take a course for that. So you can clear trail in the back country and that sort of thing. Especially Um, in an emergency any skill set you already have kind of dialed in is going to be there in an emergency. Anything that's just borderline. We just had this conversation with somebody the other day where you, she says you fall back onto your skills. You don't uh, fall forward into what you don't know. I I wrote that down somewhere, but um, 
it's it's a good it's a good idea to remember like you remember your your skills that you already have you're not going to like suddenly learn new ones yeah becomes all isn't that isn't that amazing leah like we just heard that from emily miller yeah you fall back and you fall back into training you don't fall forward into oh my gosh i can't read my own handwriting <laughs> don't fall forward into something else <laughs> yeah you're basically like you're you the the way you train is how you're going to react in the emergency yes and you know and that kind of leads me to a big picture thought here that i think is helpful um if you're heading into the backcountry in winter, right, you should know something about avalanches and I'd be avalanche aware and snowpack aware and carry rescue gear, beacon shovel probe, uh, practice with it, know how to use it. Um, if you're going to be going into bear country, we just had a grizzly bear fatality outside of West Yellowstone this past week. Um, the woman was not carrying any bear spray. Um, there's a big media press right now to just educate people more in bear awareness. I see that same kind of thing. You're in bear country, like know where you're at, have some tools, know how to use them just like you would with Beacon Shovel Probe. And what I'm getting from this podcast is really exciting me, Jess, is I am now thinking that way about the back country when it comes to wildfire, right? Like just like I check an avalanche report uh, before I head into the back country, what's the avalanche danger rating? I'm going to get on NCWeb, going to see what's going on, check with my local forest service office, see what the rating is. I'm going to have tools that I know how to use, and I'm going to be constantly mindful of what's going on with fires, what kind of trigger am I being, right? Just like triggering an avalanche or spooking a bear because you're not making any noise. Um, what, what, what role am I playing? And, and all of that, I think, is, is going to A, uh, keep me and people who are with me safer, and B, uh, hopefully prevent any, anyone in my party from igniting a wildfire. Totally. Um, I think having that good information and being aware, self-situational awareness, all those things, um, at least around here in our national forest, it is not um, uh, not uncommon for them to just say we're closing the entire national forest during a very high fire season um, or and, and that's a that's a bummer. Right. Like we all want to do our part to keep our forest open because it's 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 our it's our it's our probing ground. It's our recreation area. We want to keep that safe and open to everybody's use. Um, so doing our part to mitigate and, um, and just be safe is, is our responsibility. Yeah. I think one of the things too worth mentioning that it may be obvious to us, but I, I bring it up because we had a big fire here a couple years ago and there's still speculation about if that was a lightning strike a week ago, or if it was, um, somebody smoking. Um, things are getting more popular and more legal, more common. Maybe cigarettes oh, aren't yeah, as popular. No. Marijuana, the use though, and weed, and that's you're right. Yeah, and yeah. it's just something I kind of made. I a mean, it's legal in Montana, so yeah, yeah. I kind of made a quick note. Just, just, um, and Leah hit on it. Just personal responsibility. I mean, we don't. Again, I just come back to the phrase every day, like eighty times a day. We don't know what we don't know, and not paying attention to a little cigarette or, um, you know, a, a joint or or a, a bull still smoking or whatever it may be, you know, getting that drugs, but just other things too, just like I said, a cigarette or you've got matches to start your campfire and you just kind of, you know, threw it behind you for a second. It went out, but it, it wasn't out. And then you threw it on a leaf, just kind of that personal responsibility and overall just self-awareness and just general awareness is, is really key in the backcountry. It's really what's going to keep that for years to come for all of us to recreate in. 
Um, even little things, sparklers. I can think of a lot of little fires. People yeah, like we didn't I mean, have fireworks. Just, hey, we're camping. Yeah. We have a few fireworks. Yeah, the, Let's have some fun. The kids fun. wanted to play with sparklers, and that's and that's awesome. That's and awesome. I'm not anti playing with anything or doing it with fires of any They're kind. Really, just being wise. In, in our neck of the woods, there's no 4th of July fireworks, yeah. but so that, well, you know what that prompts people to do is buy things Home. like sparklers. Yep. And that's super dangerous. Yep. We lost, was it four years ago? All of the, the whole bear trap area was a firework. Yeah. Uh, just in the a documentary rogue. I just watched, they were explaining how yeah. it was a firework and the the size of the fire that caused was staggering. And in the yeah. statistic that you had when we were prepping for the podcast, uh, that 80% of wildfires are 90. caught. 90 percent. 90% of wildfires are human caused. Yep. Correct? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so for all of us, right, and everyone who's listening, uh, that that is why we're doing this podcast in part. Um, and let's do what we can to not be part of that problem. Maybe we can lower that number to 80. Maybe we can lower it down to 80. Then we'll know this podcast was really yeah. impactful, Jess. You know, it's it's small steps. It's We're just we're incrementally getting the more aware we can, the more. The biggest thing in wildfire, I also tell clients, is um, what you can do today is everything we've taught you. One, ask me more questions, follow up at any point, but two, tell your neighbor. Just It's one of those things that I always come back to it. We are so prepared for as prepared as one can be for, for hurricanes, for natural disasters like that. But wildfire is just still such a foreign thing for us. It's, it's something that's never going to happen to us. But the reality is it's happening to most of us. I think most of us probably know somebody who's been um, in a situation and dealt with a wildfire or knows somebody who's been a wildland firefighter who's putting their life on the line, leaving their, their husband, their wife, their kids at home, whatever it may be to go do something where somebody was just careless and dropped a cigarette or they weren't taking care of their vehicles like we were almost guilty of this week. Um, just a simple carelessness that's actually putting other people's lives on the line. So oh, that brings one more thing to mind and then we'll wrap up because you, you've been so generous with your time. Um, let's say, you know, Leah and I are in the back country. We're camping and having some fun with friends. Um, and we notice well, after a lightning storm rolls through and we're like, there's a fire start. We have an inReach. Maybe someone's a ham radio person. Uh, maybe someone a Starlink. Who knows? But what do we do as far as notifying authorities? Yeah, great question. Yeah, I mean, U.S. U.S. based. You can simply use nine one one. No one will ever be upset for that. As soon as we can detect a fire, um, I've actually had crew members. We get um, wildland firefighters usually work for about fourteen days, um, sixteen with travel, and then we get two days off. Um, and then we're right back out. That's kind of the hotshot lifestyle. And they were out camping on their two days off and witnessed a lightning strike, struck a tree, started a fire and hiked out and called 911. And then our crew went in the next day. <laughs> that was a pretty interesting one. <laughs> but yeah, if, if you see something, say something. Um, even if you just see a smoke and it's unrelated, well, then firefighters are not going to be upset to go hike in and take a look at it. Um, we'd all rather. It's uh it's one of those things where we're not trying to suppress everything 100%, but if we know about it, we can help either suppress it or control it and keep people like all of us out of that area and safe um, and not just let it skunk around and then someone goes in there unknowingly and then it blows up. And that's where, you know, we circle back to just being aware of your surroundings because we might not always know. And that Bridger fire we just talked about here two years ago, the theory was either a joint lit the fire 
or in the most that's one theory, but the most commonly widely accepted one that it was a, a lightning strike from a week before that was still skunking around and it finally got the right winds, the right heat index, and it lit and just I, if you're from the Bozeman area, once it started, it went. It was, I, I saw it when it first started. I just walked out of the high school and it looked like a tiny smoke signal campfire. And I was like, oh man. And then within an hour, you know, it was just huge. Wow. Yeah. That was our biggest fire we've had recently. You know, it could have been either one of those things, but just something where if you were camping up there, that could be pretty spooky if you're top of that ridge where a lot of people camp and recreate and run. And that, again, ties back to, you know, they might have been on foot in that particular area, but it's it's no different for overlanding and any other recreation activity you're doing. I'm thinking, too, how... I feel like I've learned a ton. Oh, me too. Cool. And I'm thinking, like, if I have an in-reach and I'm back out of cell range, I don't necessarily have to hit the SOS button. I can message any one of my friends or contacts, and they'll know exactly where I'm at, and I can tell them there's a fire start. Please call 911 share this GPS location and let's get it going. Yeah, that in reach with the text feature is definitely, we've had spot trackers and we're actually switching over for the text feature. Yeah, boy, it, with the EarthMate app. It's a game changer. It is. Yeah, it's a game changer. Well, I know you're not an influencer per se, um, but you're an amazing human being and you know a lot of things. And um, do you have any kind of social profiles or, you know, your business website? Like if people have questions, is there anywhere they can reach you? We do. Yeah. You can, you can reach us at our website, firebreakmanagement.com. We're on Facebook. Um, I think we're getting on Instagram. I am not a you tech person. On Instagram. I, Come I, on, Jess. I joke with get everybody that, uh, I was a firefighter forever and I didn't, I don't know how to function in society or be a business person. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to do that better so I can bring the knowledge I have and I've learned um, to our public better. We are we are not the techiest of companies, but um, man, I will talk to you for as long as you'd like. If you have any questions about overlanding and fire safety, about um, your property and home or wherever you live, and if it's not our area of specialty, we've got the network that can connect you if you're in a different state. We've got people all over from Fighting Fire all over the U.S. that can help with your particular area and just educate you as a company. Um, we do hope to stay in business financially, but our our biggest goal is just to educate our public about everything I have learned and our other firefighters have learned. And so you can be making the wisest decisions possible and you can help spread the message because that's really the only thing that's going to ultimately keep our forest how we want them is education. And uh, we're we're a huge proponent of that. So please call, please text, please email. We'll do whatever we can. And that's firebreakmanagement.com. And you're on Facebook is the same? <laughs> Definitely on Facebook. I, you know, honestly, I know we're on Instagram. I just don't know our handle because it's brand new. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes. Thanks. All right. <laughs> Leah, any final thoughts here for Jess? No, I think you've boosted my confidence to go out and just and, and know how to do my research before we go somewhere. Um, you know, my son is uh, seven and we went out um, camping last summer. It was the first time that we'd camped just the three of us. And I was like, hey, let's have a fire. And he goes, is it safe? can we do that? And I was like, actually, I, it's a great question. I, I don't, I don't know. And I didn't know where to look. And so now I feel more confident in my ability to find that information and do it before I go out. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. Me too. And hopefully uh, listeners, our audience, you're feeling the same way. Thanks again for joining us uh, for everything X Overland for a lot more content, film, everything we do. Um, Xoverland.com is the place to go. 
Thanks, folks. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps. The video version of this episode and of all episodes of the X Overland podcast are exclusively available at the X Overland Network. Head to xoverland.com to subscribe to the network and for access to all of X Overland's premium content. We appreciate your support, and until next time, stay adventurous.